Thanks for joining us on episode 1,286 of the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. Hi, I'm Terry Tucker. I challenge you to invest in yourself, invest in others, develop your influence, and impact the world by using your time, your talent, and your treasures to live out your calling. Having the ability to live your life of excellence is key And one way to be inspired to do that is to listen to this, the Inspired Stewardship Podcast with my friend, Scott Mader. A lot of times we feel that our purpose has to be our job or our profession or our occupation, and it doesn't. You can have a job over here and this is what you do to pay the bills, but your purpose in life is to write or to be a podcast host or to volunteer or to coach, whatever it ends up being. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In today's interview with Terry Tucker, I asked Terry about his book, Sustainable Excellence. I also asked Terry how his faith journey intersects with the principles that led him to write this book. And Terry also shares with you how he sees his calling and how it's changed as well. One reason I like to bring you great interviews like the one you're going to hear today is because of the power in learning from others. Another great way to learn from others is through reading books. But if you're like most people today, you find it hard to find the time to sit down and read. And that's why today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Go to inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to sign up and you can get a 30-day free trial. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from. And instead of reading, you can listen your way to learn from some of the greatest minds out there. That's inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to get your free trial and listen to great books the same way you're listening to this podcast. Terry Tucker believes everyone is born to lead an uncommon and extraordinary life, and that has nothing to do with where you work, how much money you make, or where you live. We are not all born with the same gifts and talents, but we all have the ability to become the best person we are capable of becoming. But how do you achieve this remarkable life in an age where everyone seems to just get by? Terry Tucker has been an NCAA Division I college basketball player a Citadel cadet, an undercover narcotics investigator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, a business owner, and most recently, a cancer warrior. He and his wife have lived all over the United States and currently reside in Colorado with their daughter and a Wheaton Terrier, Maggie. In 2019, Terry started the website Motivational Check to help others find and lead their uncommon and extraordinary lives. Terry is also the author of Sustainable Excellence. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thanks, Scott. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about it in the intro, but 
unpack for us a little bit. What actually, how did your journey bring you to found a blog called Motivational Check and then write a book about sustainable excellence? Not just excellence, but sustainable excellence. I thought it's interesting that those two words are the ones you chose to put together. Yeah. The blog really was, the blog is called Motivational Check. And it really came about one of the jobs that I had was a police officer. And when I was in the police academy, our defensive tactics instructor gave us that phrase, motivational check, as something to, that we could yell out if we were having a tough day and it was difficult to get through things. And people would. People would be like scream out motivational check. And then the class would respond with our class number. We were the 84th recruit class in the Cincinnati Police Academy with a loud 84, just to let people know that, hey, you're not alone. We're all in this together. We'll get through it together. So when I was looking for a title for my blog, Motivational Check just kept coming up over and over. And I thought there must be a reason for that. So that's how Motivational Check got named and a little bit about what it is. And then the sustainable excellence. Yeah, people always ask me, how do you define excellence? And my response is, oh, I can't. And they're like, wait a minute, you wrote this book called Sustainable Excellence. How can you not define excellence? I said, well, you got to read the book because it's certainly in the introduction that excellence like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You may look at something and I may look at the exact same thing and you may say, man, that person or team or whatever is excellent. And I may say, yeah, they're good, but I don't think they're excellent. It's a really subjective kind of thing. And then sustainable. How do you get to excellence? And then how do you sustain it? Because so many people get to the top of the mountain and then they put their feet up on the desk, lean back, have themselves you know, an adult beverage. I'm like, man, I've arrived. And then six months later or a year later, bam, somebody passes them up. So wait a minute, what happened? What happened is you didn't innovate, you didn't grow, you didn't improve. And that's how you sustain excellence. You can't do the same thing because people will figure it out and they'll do it better. I guess it was just one of those things when I looked at the book, now I need a title. <clears throat> Obviously, I wrote the book without having any idea what I was going to call <laughs> it. But then I had these 10 principles and it was like, I think this is about excellence and how you sustain excellence once you achieve it. So mm-hmm. that's how the two things got named. So with a couple of things come to mind, as you were talking, the first off is you just mentioned police officer, but you've also been a basketball player yourself, right? Right. You've done SWAT team negotiation, and then you've been a coach that a business owner. So a lot of different things showing up in your life. What do you think are some of the common themes? And then what are some of the things that caused the shifts? So I guess there there is a backstory. If you kind of look at my resume, my first two jobs were in business. And then I made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And as you mentioned, I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. I was an undercover narcotics investigator and things like that. And, And then I got into coaching. So let me give you the backstory. My grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States, during the Great Depression in the late 20s, early 30s. And when 
the mob, the gangsters. Capone and those guys were shooting up the town. And he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. Wasn't a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad remembered the stories that my grandmother used to tell. My dad was an infant when my grandfather was shot about the knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, mm. grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. And so when I expressed an interest not, in going- Not a, not a, not a knock on that door you ever want to hear. <laughs> no, it's, for a family member, that's the worst thing you can possibly imagine. And so when I expressed an interest in following in my grandfather's footsteps, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get a great job when you get out, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. White picket fence. Yeah, exactly. But that's what my dad wanted me to do, not what I felt my passion was. And so when I graduated from college, my father was dying of cancer. So Mm. I had a dilemma. Do I say, sorry, dad, I'm going to go blaze my own trail and get into law enforcement? Or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do and go into business. And so now the backstory, when you understand that, you okay. And so that's exactly what I did. I went into business and then I joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams. So when my dad died, that's when I got into law enforcement. And I think it was good that I had those jobs before law enforcement because it gave me some life experience. It gave me the ability to, I've talked to a bunch of people and I have young people now that will reach out to me and say, hey, I want to be a police officer. My first question is why? And my, <laughs> and then it's, like, what can I do to be a good one? I said, you know, put your devices down, go out on the street and talk to that homeless guy out there and then go up to the penthouse and talk to that guy. Because if you can talk to people from all different walks of life, you can be successful as a cop. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that too, and this is where I'm hopeful that we'll start to see more of this in police academies and that I have a lot of friends that are in law enforcement and then also the military is there's never in the past been an emphasis on things like teaching conversations, teaching de-escalation techniques. It's not that it wasn't taught but it was a very minor part of a very large curriculum, so to speak. Even just teaching some of the ins and outs of the actual law. I think it's funny because a lot of there, there are police officers that don't, and it's not their job, but they don't know, quote, the law, so to speak, because that's not their main focus. And we forget that. But it's starting to show up, I think, more that idea that you just said of, no, no, focus on how to have a conversation with people and actually understand what's going on as opposed to what sometimes happens, which is a different kind of conversation. So I guess we could put it that way, more of authoritarian than conversational. Yeah. And you need to know and to like do which. when to use your indoor voice <laughs> yeah. and when to use your outdoor voice. And yeah, you need to understand when it's appropriate, when it's kind of being a boss or being a coach. There are some players when they make a mistake that you need to get in their face and absolutely yell at them. And then there are some players you need to look at them and that's all you need to do because you know they're going to be harder on themselves than anything that you're going to do to them. But that's as a boss, that's something you need to understand regarding the type of people you have, what works for each person. It can't be a one size fits all. And that same thing is true in law enforcement. There are certain problem is you don't have any history right. or relationship with those people. You're you walking don't. into a cold situation right. with no prior knowledge. Right. Uh, or at least sometimes you are. Um, you are. Yeah. 
that's what I've been told by my friends that they're like traffic stops are actually one of the scariest things in the world because you literally never know what's inside that car when you walk up. You don't. And that's a good point because you got to understand and you certainly safety is number one. You want right, to go home absolutely. at the end of the night. But the bottom line is when you walk up into that car to the person that you're contacting that you've pulled over, that may be the scariest thing that happens to them all year. But for you, it's the third traffic stop of the night and it's no big deal. And you have to understand that. Again, if you're dealing with four gangbangers in a car, it's all about self-protection. If you're dealing with grandma, it's okay. Everything's okay. Not that grandma can't pull out a gun and shoot you, but you have to address the situation based on what you have in front of you and act accordingly. So I, sorry, we went on a rabbit trail there, but I I think it's important because you've had that not just the day-to-day police officer, but working in narcotics and hostage negotiation and all of that. It's obviously, it sounds like you were good at that part of it to have started going down those roads of that. So you did the business because your dad wanted you to, and then you went into the police because you felt that was your calling and your direction. So how did the coaching and all of that come into the picture? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And it was, it was coaching girls. And you're, and for me, that was something that was incredibly foreign. I had I have no sisters, so I grew up with two brothers. We were all athletes. I went to an all-male Catholic high school in Chicago. I went to college at the Citadel, which is a military school in South Carolina. When I went there, it was all-male. And I remember when my wife and I were having our baby, or having our child, and the OBGYN was like, well, do you want to know what it is? I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's. And she's like, you should buy pink. I was like, oh, you need to keep it in there till it's done. I'm like, I don't know anything about raising a girl. And our daughter, I'm okay, six It's eight. okay. By the way, they don't come with instruction manuals when they're boys they either. They don't. <laughs> you wish they did. But my daughter got my height and is six ah, foot two. Okay. And it was a basketball player. And her in high school, the school she went to was not they were they, they said they had an athletic program. They really didn't have an athletic program, at least what I knew of as an athletic program. So I wanted her and her teammates to have good coaching. So I stepped up to, to do that. And then I also had a school security consulting business on the side. So there, there was, again, another backstory to why did I jump into coaching? It was because I wanted my daughter to, to have an opportunity. And she did. She ended up going to the United States Air Force Academy. Awesome. To play basketball and blew out her knee her freshman year. Oh. Didn't play after that, but still graduated. Yeah, yeah, and not a light school either. Air Force no. Academy is a yeah tough school to get into. So how you're hearing all of these different threads and sort of weaving together? But how did your faith journey and your understanding of what you were being called to do? How did that kind of show up through all of these threads? Yeah, I think it started with our parents. We were we were raised Catholic. I am still Catholic. I still, I don't now with, I do mass online every day and that, but I've always felt a closeness with God. When I was in high school, I was like 15 years old. I had knee surgery. I remember this was long before arthroscopic surgery was available. 
And one night I had a hallucination because of the medication I was being given. And, and I had a high fever because I had an infection. And I called home at three o'clock in the morning. And I was like, mom, I'm ha-, and my mom's like, open the nightstand. There's a rosary in there. Take the rosary out and start praying. And so I did. And that helped me. And it's funny. I don't know if it's funny, but it's interesting when we, especially in America, we want to blame people or we want to blame something for our lack of success. We start down a road towards a goal and then we butt up against some impediment. Something gets in our way and we can't get around it. And so we quit, but we just don't quit. We want to blame somebody. You know, we want to blame our parents. We want to blame our boss or our station in life. And when I got cancer, people were like, first question people were asking, like, who do you blame? I'm like, what, what do you mean, who do I blame? You've got to blame somebody because you got cancer. I don't blame anybody because I got cancer. And then when people find out I have a faith life, people are like, you must blame God. And I'm like, no, I joke. I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, hey, Terry Tucker, cancer today. I don't, I don't think that at all. But I really think what God has given me is the strength to get through this. Because there were times where literally... I was praying to die. I was so sick of being sick that I was like, look, I am, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And somehow he gave me the strength, the courage to continue on this journey. And it's been over 10 years. How did, when did the cancer show up in that arc of the other journey, the non-faith journey, but the career journey? Where were you at in, in your period there? So it was 2012. I was a the high school basketball coach and I had my own consulting company. And I, I got a callus break open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And initially I didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment and went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And fortunately, we were living in Texas. He's like, I recommend you go to MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is probably the premier cancer hospital maybe in the world and be treated just because your cancer is so rare. So that started the 10-year journey. Yeah, that's a, that is a melanoma doesn't usually show up on hands or feet. That, that's a little, yeah. a little I never odd. remember as a kid laying out with my feet up in the air or anything yeah, like that. Uh, you yeah. know, sticking your feet in the sun lamp. Yeah. Or you only put your feet in the tanning beds. That's exactly. all you do. Not exactly. Yeah, that that is that is a weird place for melanoma. It what's interesting is, and I think I, I mentioned this to another guest a while back. There's a bit of a it's cancer shows up in a lot of people's stories. And I think it shows up in a lot of our households, a lot of our, you know, I think that's something that a lot of us have experience with maybe either ourselves or with a close family member or friend, it shows up over and over again. And melanoma specifically, like with guests on the show, I think you're the fifth or 
fourth or fifth guest that's had some form of melanoma. What, what helped you, and some of it is your faith, you just mentioned that, but what helped you recognize this and what do you think helped get you through that journey when you were having the days where you said that you wish you would have died or, or it was just so bad and so overwhelming? Yeah, I think three things. And I guess let me go back. When I was growing up and we had acne, we would go to the dermatologist and the dermatologist would put us under a sun. To, to, and so you wonder why all these people are coming up with melanoma now. Well, it's because we didn't realize when I was a kid, when I was in high school, that ultraviolet rays were bad for you. It was like, it dries up your pimples, so it must be good. It didn't. So that's why we're doing it. But to go back to your question, I talk about what I call my three F's, which have really gotten me through this. One is faith, the other is family, and the other is friends. And we've talked a little bit about the faith journey. My family, it's my wife, just my wife and daughter. And I remember after I had my leg amputated in 2020, my doctor wanted to start me on chemotherapy for the tumors that I still have in my lungs. And I looked at him like, is it going to save my life? He was probably not. I'm like, I'm eight years into this fight. I don't really know if I want to go through all that ugliness, if the outcome is going to be the same, whether I take it or not. I said, but I'll go home and I'll talk to my family. I said, I go home and I start telling my wife and daughter and my daughter's immediately, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. It's not like <laughs> you got a board or something like that. So we sit around the kitchen table. But that is a family meeting. You had three is, of you. Was. That's good. It was like, okay, we're well, going to sit around the kitchen table and give our perspectives about dad having chemotherapy. And then when that was done, my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute. Am I getting <laughs> voted for something that I don't want to do? But I'll go back again to another example from the police academy. My police academy days, our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people we love the most to class. And as we were learning different techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. I ended up taking chemotherapy because my wife and daughter wanted me to, and I love them more than I love myself, which in hindsight was a good thing because it was a bridge to what I'm doing now. And I'm still here, you know, two, two years after I said I didn't want to do it. And then the last thing is friends, faith, family, and friends. And I think you really find out who's in your corner, you know, who's in that foxhole with you when you have a, a terminal or a chronic illness, because a lot of people fade into the woodwork. Now, nah, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to think about that. I, I just want everything to be in rainbows. As you said, you've had a lot of guests that are dealing with melanoma, either themselves or in their family. You know, I have a very small group of friends, but they're friends that I can count on regardless of how I'm feeling. So let's kind of dive into the book a little bit. The book has 10 principles that you brought up for living your life well, having that degree of sustainable excellence. And you just talked about your three Fs. What, where do those 10 principles come from? And you know, what, share one or two maybe that are your favorites or that may be like asking for your favorite child. Well, I guess you have one child, so you can have I a do. favorite child. I have a favorite one. <laughs> you have a favorite <laughs> 
maybe asking for who's your favorite family member. We'll do that. But that, but which, you know, what's one or two that you feel like really resonated as you were getting through and writing the book? So the book was really born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former player that I had coached in high school who had moved to the area in Colorado where my wife and I live with her fiance. The four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she was like, coach, what do you think my purpose is? And I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth and then living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then the second conversation was with a young man who'd reached out to me on social media who was in college. And he said, what do you think of the things that I need to learn to not just be successful in my job or in business, but to be successful in life? And I didn't want to give him the get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. They are incredibly important. But I wanted to see if I could go deeper with him. So I thought about it for a while and I started taking notes and eventually I had these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And then I sent those principles to him and then stepped back and was like, well, I got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates that principle. So literally during the three-month period where after I had my leg amputated and before I started the chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs, while I was healing, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how sustainable excellence, the 10 principles leading your uncommon and extraordinary life came to be. Now, in terms of principles that, that I like, the principles, each chapter is a principle or each principle is a chapter. I guess that's a better way to say it. And they're not in any order. Number one isn't any more important than number seven or anything like that. But as an author, it's always fun for me because there's always one principle that a reader reacts to or that resonates with that reader. And so that's a good starting point when I meet somebody who's read the book and we can talk about it. But the one that really resonates with me, and it resonates with me because I've done it so many times in my life, I'm not proud of it, but I am. And this is the principle. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I'm like, yes, I've done that. Yes, I should do this. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I'm not smart enough, or maybe I'm not good enough. Or what are people going to say about me if I fail? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities, not using our minds. So that's one. And then The other one that I really liked that I learned from being a hostage negotiator was the importance of, there's a chapter in there about listening. And I'd be like, of course, you idiot. We all listen. What's that? (laughs) We don't. It's listening to understand versus listening to respond. And the importance of when I was a negotiator, we would parrot back what the person said to us, and then we would attach an emotion to it. But that emotion had to be what the person was feeling. If they were livid and screaming and you said, you seem a little bit upset, you totally missed the emotion there. And that's why being a negotiator was exhausting because you had to get down in the weeds, got to get down in the mud with these people and be on their level. And so when you were done after two, three, four, five hours of negotiating, you were like, oh my God, I got to go home and go to bed. 
I'm just beat to heck. And all you were doing was sitting, but you you were being in that emotion with that person. Those are two that I'm that sure I the like adrenaline and, level was high too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like it's not like it's a low stake conversation. No, it's life and death. Put it that man. way. Yeah, <laughs> it's can get seriously hurt with it. The that's interesting because you talk about listening, and I think it, it is true that we have a tendency to hearing is required. Listening is if someone's talking. You probably are hearing them, but that doesn't mean you're listening to them. Why do you think communication? Because in both of those, it's those both have the underlying theme of communication. One is self and one is other, but still there's that idea of communication. Why do you think communication is so important and shows up as something that leads to sustainable excellence or doesn't, depending on whether you do it well or don't, so to speak? I, I think communication is key. And it's, we always think of communication as I'm talking and you're listening. And Usually the best salespeople are not the best talkers. They're the best listener. I want to understand what my client is saying. And that's what we did as negotiators. People always used to say, nice job. You talked that person out. No, what we really did was listen that person out. We let them talk. We let them burn off a lot of that emotional energy and get them to a point where instead of thinking with their, their emotional brain, they're thinking now with their rational brain. And we all make better decisions when we're using our rational brain as opposed to our emotional brain. So that's why when you go into a negotiation, the first couple hours, you could be over here talking about something with the person, but the real problem is over here. And you haven't even mm-hmm. gotten to that. Yeah, We just don't walk in and say, hey, what... What would it take to put the gun down and for you to come out? That's usually hour three or hour four or hour five, because they've got to burn off a lot of that emotional energy to where their rational brain is in control. It goes back to your first principle that you shared. They've got to get out of making a decision based on fear and emotion and anger and whatever. And so that's why I think it's right now in, in society, again, I'm going to make a big generalization we're just screaming at each other. And when you're screaming at me and I'm screaming at you, I can't understand what you're saying and you can't Mm -hmm. understand what I'm saying. But if I'm to the point where, okay, Scott, I heard what you said. I may agree with it. I may not agree with it, but help me understand where I'm coming from. Now we're communicating. Now we're developing a relationship. And like I said, may not agree with you, but that's okay But for some reason in society today, it's not okay. If you don't agree with me, all of a sudden now you're a bad person. Like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, when did that happen? That just because we don't agree, we don't see eye to eye on everything, you're a bad person and I can't associate with you anymore. I don't know how you get around that other than having people understand that, guess what? It's not about you. And and I think that's a, a big problem, especially with younger people. Hey, it's all about me. I'm important. I deserve a trophy. Everything's great. Guess what? It's not about you. It's about us collectively can do a lot. You individually can't do nearly as much as us put together. And just to be fair, I actually don't think that's unique or new to the younger generation. For one reason, I think 
I always like it whenever, and I was a school teacher for a long time, so I've got some of that history too. I always like it when people talk about how the younger generation is a certain way and it, and then recognize that you're of the generation that raised so maybe we want to look at ourselves a little bit because <laughs> there's always that too. The other thing is I actually once did a historical reference study where I went and looked up quotes from history about how basically the world was coming to an end because the next generation was going to heck in a handbasket. And I found them going all the way back to Aristotle. Oh, so yeah. li- literally since the Greeks, somebody has been saying, ah, oh, this younger generation, I'm sure the first caveman that invented fire, the older cavemen were like, oh, they're just, oh, that's new angle technology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I read a book a couple years ago called Lake. And I would recommend it to you and certainly your audience. And it's written by a man by the name of James Kerr. And it's about the New Zealand national rugby team. They're called the All Blacks because their their uniforms are all black. And by most accounts, they are the most successful sports franchise in any sport in any country of all times. And what I thought was interesting was when they come to hire or bring another player onto their team, you would think they would hire for technical competency. This is what we're doing. But, and they do to a point. Obviously, if you're a sure. terrible rugby player, you're not going to get there. They're, but they're not going to hire me to play for them. And they're yeah, not going to hire not me. Happen. I can't even spell rugby, <laughs> not alone know anything about it. But the two things that I thought were interesting that they look at was, number one, character. What kind of a person are you? Do you go home and kick the dog after a loss? Or you can you handle defeat? Can you learn from it? And the second thing, and I thought back on my own career, was humility. How many times have I gone into a job interview where it's, oh my God, I better have all the answers to all these questions or I'm never going to get the job. And what they say with that humility piece is you don't have to have all the answers. As a matter of fact, we don't expect you to have all the answers as an individual, but us together, when we come together as a team, as an organization, we will figure out the answer. And that's when I talked about young people and stuff like that's what I think young people are missing. And I'm sure a lot of that comes with maturity and age and emotional intelligence and things like that, is that it isn't about you having all the answers. It's about you working within a group to come up with the answers. So don't feel you have to have everything. You don't. Nobody does. And that was one of the beauties I taught. One of the beauties of teaching science was when you do lab work and that sort of thing, you always have a lab partner. There's built-in collaboration and teamwork, project-driven things that's built into the curriculum. At least in my opinion, it should be. Sure. There are teachers that would argue with me about that, but that's a different conversation. (laughs) That built-in idea of teamwork and collaboration is somewhat built in. And politically, in other ways, I think one of the things I've said before is If you start the conversation from the point of view of I'm right and you're wrong, you're very seldom going to go anywhere. If you start the conversation from the point of view of we probably actually want the same things, we just don't necessarily believe that to get there is the same route. In other words, we're more about how we get there. That's the actual difference where we want to go. Because again, Democrat, Republican, they both want a happy, healthy, successful world. Both want now, sometimes how they define that or how they want to get there, that's where the differences lie. But we sometimes forget that. 
and it does change your frame a little bit to be able to go, oh, you're not a monster with three eyes and a tentacle coming out of the back of your head uh, after all. So how do you think you mentioned finding your purpose, then living it. And we talked about your diverse journey through different careers, but how do you think your purpose has actually shown up and in that life journey that you've had? Yeah, I guess l- let me start by saying this. And a lot of times we feel that our purpose has to be our job or our profession or our occupation. And it doesn't. You can have a job over here and this is what you do to pay the bills, but your purpose in life is to write or to be a podcast host or to volunteer or to coach, whatever it ends up being. So I guess starting with that is is important because people a lot of times feel I'm a failure because this is my job. And you're not a failure. So I think that's incredibly important. And Scott, that my answer just totally went right out of my head. So ask me that question <laughs> one more time. So what, how do you think your purpose is showing up oh, okay. in your life? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I think my purpose over the course of my life has changed. When I was younger, it was basketball. I ate, drank, slept basketball. I, it was, I didn't care about anything else. I went to school. I was a good student, but I wasn't a great student. I didn't apply myself. All I cared about was basketball. And then when I graduated from college and my basketball career ended, I felt my purpose was to go into law enforcement. Now, that was a deviated track there, but eventually I got to that point. And now as I'm more than likely coming to the end of my life, I think my purpose is to put as much goodness, as much positivity, as much motivation, as much love into the world as I possibly can with whatever time I have left. So I think my purpose has morphed as I've gone through my life. And I think it's important to understand that may happen. It may not be one thing for your entire life. It could be several different things along the way. And I think you need to be open to it. And I always tell, like I told my player, I think you need to find your purpose. How do I do that, coach? You do it with an open heart. You do it by saying, these are my gifts and talents. These are the things that interest me. I'm going to go down that path and I'm going to try this. Oh, maybe that wasn't for me. I'll try this because that interests me too. Being curious, being a lifelong learner, keeping an open mind, I think will eventually get you to your purpose. So go back for a second. Say again, what what do you see your purpose being now? To put out what? To put as much goodness, as much positivity, as much motivation, as much inspiration, as much love back into the world as I possibly can. Okay. So let me... Do you mind playing for a minute? No, not at all. So let back when you were eat, drink, sleep, basketball stage of your life, what kind of player were you? I was good. Okay. Were you a team good. player or were you a ball hog center of attention, wanted to be the star player kind of player? I, I didn't want to be the star player. I was in a lot of ways. I was six foot five when I was 13 years old. There's that how do you get great? It's the 10 years or the 10,000 hours and all that kind of stuff. When I started playing basketball, I got incredibly lucky because my first basketball team ever, I was like nine years old. I was on the same team with the son of the assistant coach for Ohio State's basketball team, Bob Burkholder. And I had access to the Ohio State basketball camps and all those. So I was fortunate. 
And that was just a luck of the draw. I didn't know who he was, and I just happened to get on his team. Yeah, I was a good player, and the better I got, the more I wanted to practice and the more I wanted to learn. But it was about – I was a smart basketball player. You know, I understood the game as much as I was good at playing it. So just curious, whenever coaches saw you and things, did they did they look to you to be a leader within the team? Sometimes you know, I used to go to basketball camps in the summer. And I remember I was at this small college in Ohio basketball camp. And because of my height and my ability, I was given a choice. It's like, based on your age, you can practice and play with the younger campers or you can play and practice with the older campers. And so I practiced and played with the older campers. But at the end of the week, they had different competitions, free throw shooting and stuff like that. And they gave me the choice again. You can shoot with the younger players. And I thought, oh, I'm going to shoot with the younger players because I'm sure I can beat them. Well, I lost the free throw shooting contest. And I'll still never forget this. I don't remember the coach's name, but I remember what he looks like. He put his arm around me. He pulled me aside. He said, why did you shoot with the younger players when you played all week with the older players? And I said, because I wanted to win. I, I wanted to win that trophy. I wanted to. And he said, and what happened? I said, I I didn't win. Another kid beat me. And he said, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to play better. You're going to do better if you surround yourself with better competition. It's going to force you to bring your A game, so to speak, Mm -hmm. all the time. And he said, I think if you would have shot with the older players, you probably would have won that free throw shooting contest. But because you thought you could win by going the easy way, you did. And I still remember that today. I still was like, yeah, bring your A game. Surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, that are better than you, that have higher ambitions and higher goals because they will force you to raise your game in life. And that was a big lesson that I learned at a young age. And when you were a police officer, do you think, again, did you show up as the guy that went out on your own and and did your own thing? Or were you a team player there and that, that obviously... You worked in some pretty extreme environments and situations. How do you think you showed up there? Yeah, I, when I was a negotiator, we would train at the police academy. And a lot of times when there was an academy class there, we were, they had some time to kill us. Like, hey, will you talk to these, these recruits? And when I would talk to them, I used to tell them, they're going to spend six months teaching you how to use all these tools on your belt. But the two biggest tools you bring to this job are your brain and your mouth. You know, what you say and how you say it can turn a yes person into a no person or a no person into a yes person. So if you're here to kick ass and take names and arrest people and all that stuff, you're in the wrong profession because somebody's going to, there's always going to be somebody bigger, stronger, tougher than you, and you're going to get hurt or somebody else is going to get hurt. So use this and this before you use these things. And if you're good at using your mouth and your brain, most of the time you won't have to use these tools on your belt. So that's the way I approach things. Again, I was older. I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer. So I brought some life experience to it and realized, yes, I'm six foot eight, I'm 240 pounds. Most people didn't want to try me just because, (laughs) yeah, probably not going to win this, but there were when, especially when you're drunk or high, 
you don't have no or stupid. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but I had a partner, I had a female partner from my academy class who was she had a master's degree, she was a black belt in karate, she she was amazing. But her dad used to always say, Hey, when the shooting starts, make sure you hide behind Terry because (laughs) he's got a bigger target. But no, I was not somebody that I wanted to make a difference, I wanted to help people as opposed to arresting them or jamming them up in some way. So the reason why I ask those follow-up questions is I would argue that your purpose actually hasn't changed as much as you think it has. Your assignment and where you lived out that purpose has changed pretty dramatically. But and you probably gotten clearer on your purpose and had more understanding of it with more gray hair, so to speak. Yeah. But <laughs> but it's and better at articulating it. And I bet if I went back to that high school kid playing basketball you wouldn't have been able to put it into words, no. but it sounds like you were the player that did. Yeah. There was part of you that showed up for yourself and wanted to win. And like you had that experience, you just shared of, Oh, I'm going to play with the younger kids. Cause I can win, but you also learned a lesson from it. And that began to inform some of how your purpose showed up later in ways of, it's not just about whether or not I win. It's also about what happens to the larger group, what happens to the team, how do people succeed? What what is what motivation? What am I putting out into the world? Speaking, thinking is more important than just whether or not I win the trophy at the end of the day. Does that make That's sense? That's a good point. I never thought about it that way, but you very well may be right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I because I think a lot of times you're right. I'm not saying our purpose and our our calling and whatnot doesn't necessarily change, but again, we're back to what you said at the beginning. We often look to our purpose out of our, what I call assignment, which is just the role we're taking and our roles change all the time. You're a dad, you're a husband, you're a police officer, you're a business owner, you're a Arthur, you're a, and you can actually have five or six or seven or 12 roles at one point in your life. (laughs) But yet a lot of times our purpose or our calling will show up in all of those roles, not necessarily identically, but it'll still show up. If that yeah, makes sense. That's a good point. You, I had never thought about it that way, but you certainly give me something to think about now. <laughs> there you go. Free coaching. Yay. There you go. <laughs> um, so one of the questions I like to ask all of my guests has to do with stewardship. My brand is inspired stewardship. I use that word. I talk about that word a lot. And yet I've discovered like excellence and like leadership and like some of those other words. We use it, but we don't necessarily all mean the same thing by it. So for you, what does the word stewardship mean and how has that shown up in your life? Yeah, that's a great question. I was thinking about that before we, we jumped on the call and I'm not a very smart guy. So I try to keep things in as simple as I possibly can. And I, I think stewardship is just basically taking care of something. And I think maybe in this case, we're talking about our gifts, our talents, our treasures, our time, and things like that. And I've, I've always believed that we were put on this earth to serve in some capacity, whether if you believe in God to serve our God, but certainly to serve ourselves and our fellow man. I, 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 and when I start to think about this, I get overwhelmed. It's There has never been anyone with the same unique gifts and talents as you, Scott, or as me, or as our spouses and things like that. And when you think about that, from the dawn of time till the end of the world, there never will be anybody 
as unique as us. So I think it's important that we are good stewards of those gifts and those talents that we've been given. And the other thing I think we need, we absolutely need to be good stewards of is time. I've come to realize as I'm probably coming to the end of my life that time is something that we all take for granted, but it's really a very important thing. And if you look at the most successful people in the world, they covet their time. The words that those people use often is the word no. Does what this thing you're asking me to do coincide with my values and my mission? And if it doesn't, then no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not. We tend to be pleasers. And so we say yes to everything. But the most successful people in the world use no a whole lot more than they use yes because they are good stewards of their time and they want to use that time in a way that is productive, that goes along with their values and their missions. So I guess that's a long-winded answer to your question. (laughs) No, that's a very good answer to the question. So this is my favorite question, though though some guests don't like it. So we'll see how how you feel about it. If I invented this magic machine and I was able to pluck you from where you sit today and transport you magically into the future, 150, maybe 200 years, And through the power of this machine, you were able to look back on your entire life and see all of the connections, all of the ripples, all of the relationships, all of the impacts that you've left behind on the world. What impact do you hope you've had on the world? Yeah, I've had people, how do you want to be remembered? And and I don't don't really care how I'm remembered. Nobody's going to name a street or a building or anything. then those are all transient and just things. I guess I want to be remembered as somebody who left this world better than I came into it, that put more love into the world than when I got here. And I think I've done that. I mean, there are certainly times I've failed miserably on that, but I really think, and that's not something especially guys want to talk. Guys don't talk about love. That's not, that's not a macho or kind of thing to talk about. But it's important. And it's not just love. It's not romantic love. It's love for, if you believe in God, your creator. It's love for yourself. It's love for the job or the passion or the purpose that you do in life. Love kind of permeates our entire lives. And to me, it's really the only thing that we can take with us beyond this life that we have. So I guess I would hope that I would put as much love in the world as I possibly could with whatever time I have. So what's coming next for you as you go on this journey to living up your call? A couple of things. One, I've just recently started a, a membership program around sustainable excellence, around the book that really dives deeper into the, the reasons some of those principles exist and how you can use those reasons and apply those principles. I've thought about, toyed with a second book. Sustainable excellence is about success. And success is what we we do. We're we're successful business person, successful podcast, or whatever. But I think I'd like to write another book also about another word that begins with S, and that word is significance. Significance is what we do for other people. Now, I think you can be both. I think you can be successful and significant, but I think it's more important in life to be significant. So I'm toying. I haven't even started writing yet, but I'm trying to pull stories and things together about maybe doing a second book around significance. Awesome.
You can follow Terry on Facebook as Motivational Check or find him over on LinkedIn or Twitter as Terry Tucker, or he has an Instagram under Sustainable Excellence Arthur. The easiest way, though, you can find out details about all of this and his book and more over at motivationalcheck.com. Of course, I'll have links to all of that in the show notes as well. Terry, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? I guess if I could end with just one final story, if I might. Mm -hmm. Always been a big fan of Westerns growing up, television shows, movies, and things like that. When I was young, my mom and dad used to let me stay up late and watch Bonanza and Gunsmoke and Wild Wild West was my favorite. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. You may have seen it. It was a huge blockbuster. It starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, for your audience that don't know this, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth and not just made up characters for the movie. Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt Earp had been some form of a lawman almost his entire life. And somehow these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds come together and form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying of tuberculosis at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died at that sanitarium, and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money. He has no job. He has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And then this almost final scene in the movie, the two men are talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, when I was younger, I was in love with my cousin, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc mm-hmm. looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's just life and get on with living yours. Scott, you and I probably know people, there may be members of your audience that are sitting back and saying, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. Or when this arises, I'll have a successful life. Or when this occurs, I'll have a significant life. I guess what I'd like to leave you with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there. Find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do, at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Sad. Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash iTunes rate, all one word, iTunes rate. It'll take you through how to leave a rating and review and how to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get every episode as it comes out in your feed. Until next time, invest your time, your talent, and your treasures, develop your influence, and impact the world.